Good afternoon, everyone. On the Feast of Pentecost, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Church of God in a special way, most spectacular way. And we read about that in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, that is, all of Jesus' disciples who were gathered in Jerusalem. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the disciples of Jesus, who numbered about 120 at the time, were gathered together in Jerusalem, and suddenly there was the sound as of a mighty rushing wind, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we might ask, why was the Holy Spirit given? What effect did it have or does it have? What did God's Spirit cause them to do? And why should we want God's Spirit? And how can we have it? And how can we have more of it? These are some of the questions that I want to address in today's sermon. We're going to approach the question of the Holy Spirit from the standpoint of how the Holy Spirit relates to God's Word. Specifically, how the Holy Spirit relates to God's Word. Often, people focus, when they read about the Holy Spirit being given, they focus on certain unusual phenomena that occurred in certain specific instances, such as the speaking in languages, foreign languages. But that's not what commonly occurs when one receives the Holy Spirit, even though it has occurred on certain occasions. But there are other aspects of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit that are actually much more significant and much more important than simply speaking in a foreign language. And we're going to learn about some of those things today. First of all, we need to understand that the Word of God and the Spirit of God are inseparable. Often the way they are spoken of in the Bible, they seem to be virtually synonymous. For example, Jesus is referred to as a spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, he is referred to as the Word. We are sanctified, we're told, by the Spirit of God in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. And in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, we are both washed and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We're sanctified by the Word of God, we're told in John chapter 17, verses 17 through 19, we're sanctified by the Word of God. And Jesus said there, your Word is truth. But we're also sanctified and washed by the Word in Ephesians 5, verse 26, so we're sanctified by the Word 
we're washed or cleansed by the word of God, and the same is true of the Holy Spirit. We're sanctified by the Spirit of God. We're washed by God's Spirit. In John 3 and verse 5, Jesus said, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In James 1 and verse 18, we read, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What these scriptures reveal, among other things, is that there is a very close relationship between the word of God and the spirit of God. And we would do well to try to understand that relationship. Jesus said in John 6, verse 63, that his words are spirit, that his words are spirit. In Acts 1 and verse 8, we read that the Spirit of God is, among other things, is power from God. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you sh and, and this is Acts 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come up upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, power, like the Holy Spirit, is something you can't necessarily see. For example, the wind has power, but you can't see the wind. You can feel the power of it. You can see the effects of the power of the wind, but you can't really see wind. Electricity is a form of power, but you can't see electricity. You can see the manifestations of electrical current such as sparks flying or lightning or the work that it might do, such as in these fans that are blowing here. But electricity, as with other forms of energy or power, can be stored. A battery is one way of storing electricity. A charged battery can be hooked up to an electric motor and supply power to run the motor. In certain respects, we might compare the written word of God, the Bible, as analogous to a battery. The Bible, you might say, is a storehouse of spiritual power. And when your mind is properly plugged in to that source of power into God's word, it can energize you with the Holy Spirit, with the Spirit of God. That power, that same power is what is behind God's word. It's what led to the speaking and the preservation of God's word. Remember what Jesus said to them. He said once they were recipients of the Holy Spirit, they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, they would be speaking the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit that was given to them. There's a converse relationship between the Spirit of God and his word. Not only can the word of God be a source of power in charging your mind and spirit with the spirit of God, but notice what happened when God's spirit was poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost. As we read in Acts 1 and verse 8, Jesus said, You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in 
all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what did the Spirit do? It caused them to speak. And in this case, they were speaking in other languages. But more important is that than the languages was the fact that they were speaking. They were speaking the word of God. In verse 18 of Acts 2, it says, On my servants and on my handmaidens, this is actually a quotation from a prophecy in the Old Testament, On my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days my spirit and they shall prophesy. They shall prophesy. Prophesy doesn't always mean necessarily foretelling the future. Primarily it has to do with speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit of God in terms of how it's used in Scripture. Although many people prophesy and are not necessarily speaking under God's inspiration, but in terms of what this verse is referring to, it is people speaking the word of God under the influence of his spirit. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, it says, When they had prayed, the place was shaken. This was a little later in the history of the church. And the church was gathered together. Those in Jerusalem were gathered in a certain place and they prayed. And it says, The place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Notice that a, a consequence, the consequence mentioned specifically here of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that they spoke the word of God with boldness. And this is speaking especially of the apostles who had been threatened and beaten for speaking God's word. But the Holy Spirit empowered them to speak the word of God. We read in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 that the word of God is given through the Holy Spirit. In verse 20 of 2 Peter 1, Peter said, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The teachings of God's word that were both spoken and written were spoken and written as a consequence of men speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only inspired the scriptures, but it also helps us or empowers us to understand the word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul wrote, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but that which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual so it is through the Holy Spirit that we might know the things that have been 
revealed to us by God. And these are the things that have, all, have been spoken through the Spirit by those empowered to speak God's Word and teach it. The Word of God is one of the primary instruments through which the Spirit of God works. We read, for example, in Ephesians 6, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, an instrument through which we do battle, and perhaps also implied here is that the helmet of salvation is the Word of God as well certainly is related to it. And in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, we read, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Note here that it says the word of God is powerful. Now we already read that the, the spirit of God is the power of God. And the word is powerful. And that the word is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word translated discerner in the Greek is kritikos, which is the source of the English word critic. A critic, of course, is someone who analyzes. It's often used in a negative sense, but it doesn't necessarily have to be negative. It implies a person who analyzes and critiques something could be good or bad depending on the on the subject but human beings have taken upon themselves to be critics of God's word in a negative sense quite often but it's not human beings in the final analysis who will be the critics it's God's word that will judge mankind God's word will judge mankind John 12 verse 47 Jesus said if anyone hears my words and does not believe I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So it is the word of God which will judge us, all of mankind. So it was written in Romans chapter 8 that if we do not have the spirit of God, we are not gods in the sense that we have not received the gift of salvation and we are not his as it says in, 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 that, in that sense. In, in another sense, of course, all the world is God's, all creation. But we're not his in the sense of having an intimate personal relationship with God and having been granted the promise of salvation through the receiving of the Holy Spirit because the, the gift of salvation comes with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 9 of Romans 8, Paul wrote, you are, not, uh, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So unless we have received the Spirit of God, we are not his in the sense that we're speaking of here. I think it would be prudent of us to want to make sure that we do indeed have the Spirit of God dwelling in us.
And so we might ask, how can we make sure that we have that spirit, that we genuinely have the Holy Spirit? The key to having the Spirit of God is repentance. Actually, it's repentance and faith in God together. But in Proverbs 1 and verse 23, we read, turn at my rebuke, which implies faith, believing God's word, because that's how God rebukes us, is through his word. Turn at my rebuke, surely I will pour out my spirit on you, I will make my words known to you. So notice God said, turn at my rebuke, turn at my rebuke is what repentance is. It's changing your attitude and your conduct to bring it into accord with what God requires of us. In other words, instead of breaking God's laws, we start obeying God's laws or striving to obey them. We quit resisting God's word. We quit resisting his instructions and we start conducting our lives in accordance with what God instructs us to do. That's what repentance is. And it says there, that if we repent, if we turn at the rebuke of God's word, God said, I will pour out my spirit on you and I will make my words known to you. Notice again the, the connection between the spirit of God and the word of God. Once we are given God's spirit, then God's word becomes much more comprehensible to us. We can understand it far more deeply once we are being motivated by the Spirit of God and enlightened by God's Spirit than we could otherwise. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, Peter and the other apostles had been preaching to a group of people and when they heard what was said, it says in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. In other words, they were convicted by what had been said, at least some of them were, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So notice the gift of the Holy Spirit is contingent on repenting and I gave a sermon recently about baptism. Baptism, of course, is something that is required of us upon repentance. And if we're genuinely repentant, we're going to be baptized as Christ demands. And then we can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, one can receive the Spirit of God through repentance. And it must be a genuine, heartfelt repentance. It has to go to the heart and core of your being it can't just be something that you do in a on, a on a superficial level it has to be a life-changing type of repentance but that's not the end of what is required to maintain the holy spirit we must continue to repent repentance is a lifelong process that we enter into upon conversion and what that means is that we continue to be corrected by God's word. We continue to be informed and shaped and molded by the word of God. And it is through that process of 
being nurtured and nourished spiritually by the word of God that we maintain the Holy Spirit. And might use the analogy of the battery again. If you have a motor that's plugged into a battery, it must continue to be plugged in in order to continue running. If you unplug it, then it's soon going to lose the source of energy which enables it to run. And it's the same with our relationship with God in order to maintain the Holy Spirit, to have that energy moving in our lives, we need to be plugged into its source. Of course, God is the source, but we approach God through his word. It's through God's word that we are corrected, that we are informed. It's through God's word that he shapes and molds us. And, of course, the word and the Holy Spirit work together in that process. In John 6 and verse 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and whoever eats of this bread, he will live forever. And he said, the bread that I shall give is my flesh. In verse 53, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, this is an enigmatic statement, and Jesus is speaking metaphorically here, as we will see. Even though it's enigmatic, it's not that difficult to understand what he's getting at if if we pay attention here. In verse 54, he said, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. For he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, what was he talking about? As I said, he was speaking metaphorically, and he was speaking in a spiritual application of his words. He was saying that we need to partake of his spirit. And we do that through the study of God's word and applying it. Jesus said in verse 63, it is the spirit which gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Here's where he clarifies his statement. It's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. What he was talking about feeding on him was feeding on his words, drinking in of his words, eating of his word. The word of God is compared to food a number of places in the Bible. And For example, in Matthew 4 and verse 4, it tells us that we do not live by bread alone, that is physical food, but by every word of God. The word of God is the source of eternal life through the spirit of God. God's word is spiritual meat or food. And in order to maintain 
a spiritual relationship with God to maintain the Spirit of God working in our lives, then we must seek out the Word of God. We must seek it and we must study it and drink in of it. It's like no different from eating and drinking in order to sustain your physical life. If you quit eating and you quit drinking, in a few weeks you'll be dead. In Hebrews 5 verse 12, Paul wrote to the church and he said, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. The first principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Notice how he's comparing the oracles. The oracles is just a word which, which means words. And he's speaking in the context of God's word and likening it to milk and more solid food. And he said, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but... Solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. How do you have your senses exercised? You do it through familiarizing yourself with God's word, studying it, drinking in of it. And the more you drink in of God's word, the more you study it and learn what it actually teaches, not filtered through what deceivers would have you believe, but what the Word of God actually says, which is often quite different from what people claim it says. Once you drink in of that Word, the more you drink in of it, the more you digest it, the more of an impact it has on your mind, then the more you're going to be able to discern between good and evil. As we drink in of God's word and consume it and make it a part of us, we are thereby empowered by the Spirit of God. Notice in John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, where do we find the commandments of God? We find them in the Scriptures. And he said, if you do that, if you keep my commandments, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Notice that this Holy Spirit is referred to here as the Spirit of truth. Now, what is truth? We associate truth with words, words that are either true or false. God's Spirit is the Spirit of truth. So we see another connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And it says, God will give us His Spirit of truth if we obey His commandments, which the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Speaking of God's Spirit, if we obey God's Word. And that spirit is the spirit of truth. What this tells us then is if, there, if we want a greater measure of God's spirit, we need to spend more time studying and drinking in of God's word. And we need to meditate on God's word. 
as we study it, we need to actually think about what we're studying and think of various ways that the lessons of Scripture might apply in our individual lives. We need to ask ourselves, quite often people read over phrases or paragraphs or statements that they don't really understand and they just go on without giving it any thought. You might try asking yourself as you read the Bible, as you read the various verses in the Bible or chapters, do I really understand what this is saying? And if you don't, you might work on doing whatever it takes to properly understand it. Among the things you can do besides further study in a proper manner is pray for God to give you understanding. But to receive greater power of God's spirit working in us, we have to be studying God's word. And we need to be allowing God's word to correct us, to convict us, and to guide us in our conduct, in our decisions. When we are convicted by God's word, when God's word says something that exposes a problem or a sin, a transgression, and we are convicted, we need to act on that conviction, not try to deny it or get around it or excuse and justify ourselves, but we need to act on the conviction and be led by God's spirit to repent. Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 5 of Galatians, beginning with verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Each of us is made of flesh and blood. We have a fleshly nature, carnal human nature, which is a nature that is hostile to God's way of life. It's undisciplined. It is. It tends towards sin and lawlessness. And so Paul says the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In other words, there are two opposing influences, you might say. The influence of the fleshly mind, the fleshly nature, and the mind of God and they're contrary to one another. So, he said, you do not do the things you wish. In other words, you might, on one level, consent to the goodness of God's laws, but then, through the weakness of the flesh, you transgress. But you have to fight that nature. You have to struggle to overcome it with the help of God's Spirit. He said, if you're Led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, as I've explained before, usually when God or when the Paul uses the term the law in his epistles, he's talking about the old covenant as a complete package. And being under the law implied also that they were under the curse of the law. Because there were blessings for obedience and there were curses for disobedience. And the penalty of disobedience is ultimately death. And if we are being led by the Spirit, we're freed not only from the old covenant, 
in the sense that we are under a different covenant, the new covenant, that is not a covenant without law, by the way. Actually, it has the same laws. But we are freed from the penalty of death. And it says, The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The people of Israel, even though they had instructions from God, most of them were not converted. They did not receive the Holy Spirit. They were not being led by it, even though they were instructed by God to not do these things that we just read about. They were doing them anyway. And so, being under the law... In that sense, as Paul points out in the book of Galatians, led to curses and condemnation. But being led by God's Spirit has a different consequence. Notice in verse 22, he said, The fruit of the Spirit is love. We just read what the fruits of the flesh are. The fruit of the Spirit is love, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So we are to be led by the Spirit of God, and if we are yielding to God's word if we are studying it drinking in of it striving to obey it we will learn to live in the spirit and walk in the spirit rather than in the flesh we can overcome our fleshly minds our fleshly nature you might ask how is it that many hear god's word may even study it and yet are not changed by it there are some people who spend their entire lives studying the Bible. Theologians, Bible scholars who spend their entire lives studying the Bible, but it doesn't really change them on a deep level. The law was given to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai probably on the day of its Pentecost, but being given the law did not make the people of Israel righteous. In Hebrews 3 and verse 7, we read about the people of Israel in the wilderness. And it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. They received the law of God, but they hardened their hearts against it. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Verse 15, he goes on to say, While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, 
do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. One can hear God's word, but he can harden himself against it. He can refuse to be led by it or chastened by it. One can resist God's word and refuse to believe it. And that's what happened to most of the people of Israel in the wilderness. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, were familiar with God's word. Many of them, especially the scribes, had, had spent much of their lives studying and memorizing the Bible. But Jesus said to them, to these religious leaders, that they did not have God's word abiding in them because they did not believe it. They pretended to believe it, but the truth is they did not believe it because they were not obedient to it. They were not faithful to it. And Jesus said in John 5, verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Scriptures testified of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But he said, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. In verse 45 he said, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father, there is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, the writings of Moses, how will you believe my word? Yes, they claim to be believers of the scriptures, including the writings of Moses, but they did not truly believe them. And Jesus said, if you don't believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe me? What manifested their disbelief, besides the fact that they rejected the Messiah, was that they walked in ways which were contrary to the instructions of the scriptures that they claimed to, to follow. They preferred their own traditions to the word of God. And so in Mark 7 and verse 6, Jesus answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. And he said, by way of explanation, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They were not following the instructions of God's word. They were following the commandments of men, their own traditions. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do, he said to them, 
All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Then in verse 13, as he was further explaining, he said that they were making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. Often people cloak rebellion and disobedience in religious garb and try to make it look righteous, look holy. And that is how the various traditions of human devised religion are. They may look good on the outside or they may look good to some people. They may have this religious aura about them, but if they are not God's word, if they are the traditions of men, commandments of men contrary to the commandments of God, then it's a religion that is vain and useless. When men reject God's word in order to keep their traditions or to seek the approbation of men, that was another problem with the religious leaders. They were, they were not seeking to please God so much as seeking to receive praise and honor from men. And that is a trap that can destroy you spiritually. Pride and vanity, seeking to please men instead of God. And we, we can all be affected by that in various ways. No doubt all of us have been affected at one time or another. But we need to have the courage and the faith to be rejected of men when that is necessary in order to please God. If we seek our own traditions, we seek the approbation of men rather than God, then we cut ourselves off from being empowered by God's Spirit. That power is short-circuited. It is blocked. And so we do not have that influence, or at least not to the, to the same degree, we do not have that influence guiding and empowering us. One of our problems as human beings is that it is natural, it is quite natural for us to reject the word of God. That is simply the way human nature works. It is in our nature to reject God's word. Paul wrote in Romans 8 verse 7, the carnal mind, that is the fleshly natural human mind that we're all born with, the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be. We cannot of our own volition just by ourselves we cannot be subject to God's word and that was one of the problems with the leaders among the Jews they were relying on their own strength their own righteousness so to speak rather than submitting themselves to God and allowing God to give them the power they needed to live obediently Paul wrote in verse 13 of Romans 8, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Through, this, through the power of God's Spirit working in us, we can overcome our fleshly nature. We can become submissive to God's Word. But we have to begin by showing a willingness to repent and then allowing God to guide us into a deeper and more complete relationship. Jesus said in John 15, verse 7, 
if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. If we abide in Christ and his words abide in us, that means that they are in our minds and hearts motivating and guiding us. He said, if that is the case, then you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. What should we ask for? Does that mean if we want a pink Cadillac, that's what we ask for and we'll automatically be given a pink Cadillac? If God's words are truly abiding in us, then we are going to be asking for those things that please God. And it's not at the top of God's list of priorities that we all have a pink Cadillac, whether that's on the top of our list of priorities or not. If that's what we're truly seeking and motivated to request, as the most important thing in our life, we're not really abiding in God's word. Notice what Jesus said in Luke 11, beginning with verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What we need to be asking God for is his spirit the motivation and strength necessary to live according to his word. If you are abiding in God's word and if you're asking for his spirit, it will be given to you. That's a, a prayer that will not be refused or even postponed. Now we might ask for other things such as healing, for example. And if we ask in faith for healing, we will receive healing eventually but not necessarily right now or even in this lifetime. But if we ask for God's spirit and we're genuinely seeking it, drinking in of his words, striving to obey it, then that request will be granted in a very timely fashion. So we might ask ourselves, do I want life? Do I want God's spirit? Jesus said his words are spirit and they are life. His words are spirit in their life. If you're sitting there with the Bible in your lap, you're holding in your lap life. You're holding in your lap the Holy Spirit. The question is, what are you going to do with it? James wrote in James 1 verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. That means repent. And Receive with meekness or humility the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. God's word can save you if you do it.